This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. I have some of my talking points on my phone. And the problem is that uh, one of my good friends won't stop not just texting me. He's tweeting at me. And so I have the notifications on, so it keeps popping up, and t- there he goes. Here comes another one. Um, all right, inshallah. So, bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. You know, every day, um, alhamdulillah, it's been great visiting Knoxville, and I've really enjoyed my time here. <clears throat> really gotten to meet some great brothers and sisters, some wonderful families, and uh, Abdurrahman, you know, really, really talked a lot about how wonderful Knoxville is and, um, you know, what makes any place that amazing are, are, of course, the people. And so he's been saying some remarkable things about the people and, mashallah, you guys have definitely lived up to your reputation. Um, And I've really, really enjoyed meeting everyone here. Every single time before a session, I tell myself and I think to myself that, you know, maybe... Uh, I want to maybe have a little bit more of a serious topic, a little bit more serious of a talk, and uh, maybe kind of just, you know, drop the knowledge a little bit. Um, Well, we have a session for that tomorrow anyways, but then whenever I get up here, then there's so many things on my mind and so many things I want to say, and I'm sincerely, honestly, having such a good time that I decide to cut loose again. Uh, Something interesting, something very, very interesting that I want to share with you guys. Right before, as I was coming up here and Ashraf was reading my bio, um, we were kind of having a little bit of a laugh there. Uh, and we weren't laughing at Ashraf, no, don't worry. Um, we were laughing because when he was reading my bio, it said that I went to go, alhamdulillah, by the grace and mercy of Allah, I went to go memorize the Quran in 1989. And uh, the first thing uh, Murphy said to me was like, wow, you're old. Because uh, I was about 10 years old at the time and he was a year old. When I memorized the Quran, he was one year old. That's how old he was. Uh, so that goes to show you, number one, how old I am, yet how cool I am, all right? That I'm still cooler than he is, all right? Even though I'm practically an uncle now. Um, <laughs> that's the end. We're unplugging you right now. You've been cut off. No, so alhamdulillah. I wanted to kind of um, add on a couple of things to what uh, Brother Murphy was talking about and then actually wanted to take a little bit of a different angle towards the end of my speech. Now more people are getting into this Twitter fest here. God, make it stop. My phone is buzzing nonstop. So um, airplane mode for the win. So he was talking about respecting parents. He was talking about respecting parents. And, you know, that's a topic that Brother Murphy kills, mashallah. It's, it's amazing every single time he talks about it. Because I think what he says, I think the way he talks about it, I think the way he approaches it really resonates with the youth. They get it. They understand. And it's, it's a lot more easier. You guys who have been attending the session throughout the weekend uh, have seen my kids kind of running around and coming on stage and wreaking havoc on the sessions. Um, I'm a dad now. So when I talk about respecting parents, I'm just trying to make sure, you know, that my kids get the message. You know, I'm just trying to take care of my position here. When Brother Murphy talks to you about it, I think you you feel like it's one of your own giving you some honest, sincere advice that he's kind of come into. Like he was mentioning very honestly to you that, you know, you know, he had some struggles in trying to figure out a good balance in his relationship with his parents. And so when he gives you that advice, it's one of your own. Telling you something who just has a few years 
of seniority on you, but it's just enough seniority for him to have realized some very, very powerful, valuable things, which will come in handy to you. Which will come in handy to you. You know, in any line of work, in any line of work, um, you know, uh, whether it be, you know, apprenticeship was the way people learned art, was the way people learned the skill. And it's something that's gone away from us more and more and more. But in certain fields of, of different practice or knowledge or skills, all right, that apprenticeship still exists. Like for instance, you know, in medicine, they make you do a medical residency and you have an attending and you have a supervisor and he looks over you and you follow him around and you do the rounds and all that good stuff. It's an apprenticeship. Even in knowledge and in ilm, the line of, you know, uh, basically what, what we're trying to spend our life doing, the more effective scholars, and you guys have probably experienced this, mashallah, Brother Murphy, again, and one of the things he told me about Knoxville is, this is a blessed community. It might be small, it might, you know, might not really jump out and stick out on the map. You have to click zoom in like twice actually see Knoxville on the map. Alright, no, it's okay, I'm not, I'm not, no, no offense intended. In spite of that, the bigger cities that you have around you, you guys are visited by ten times as many scholars than those other big cities around you are visited by. You know, there are three major cities that are within driving distance that are probably a lot bigger than Knoxville that I currently have emails waiting from and that actually one of those cities, when they found out I was coming to Knoxville, they got really, really upset with me. They said, we emailed you a year and a half ago. And I was like, uh, Murphy lives in Knoxville, right? So <laughs> that was my defense. But, um, but it, regardless, mashallah, it's a blessed community. You are visited by many people of knowledge. And, and you've seen this. The scholars that are more effective, that have that barakah and blessing in their work, in their knowledge, in their ilm today, are again typically those scholars that didn't just pick up a book and just master it. They're not just somebody who just scoured the internet, reading up answers, memorizing answers, and they come and they throw them at you. They were, they were apprentices. Right? They, they were apprentices for other scholars. They, they sat you know, with a scholar for, for years and years, for decades. They sat at the feet of scholars. They followed them around. They listened to them. They spoke next to them. They, you know, um, they, they, they learned from them. On the move, on the go in life. And that's what, that, that's what contributes to making them so effective. So this, this is a skill, this is an art that's really, really lost on us today. So, learning and, and going around and, and so, with Brother Abdurrahman Murphy, you have that opportunity. He still very much qualifies as a young person. But he's a young person who has a lot of experience, right, uh, for such a young age. And he's realized some great things. And so when he talks to you about the youth, uh, like I was saying, I think it's really effective. I, I find it effective. You know, I find it effective. By the time my kids kind of get to, you know, teenage years... Uh, brother Abdurrahman Murphy will be uncle Abdurrahman Murphy by then. Um, but that's why I'm glad that these video cameras are on so my kids can go back and watch these videos. So when they start to act out, I'm like, you need to watch a YouTube video now. Right? So that will be the first time in history a parent ever said that. But inshallah, that's what I look forward to. But one thing I wanted to add on to what he was saying. So he, he kind of mentioned it kind of in passing that the ayah he was sharing with you, one of the things that becomes apparent from the context of the ayah and something that's added on in the tafsir of that ayah where you don't even say oof, you, you don't even behave inappropriately towards your parents, a body language, and say good things to them and lower your wings of mercy for them and make dua for them. One of the subtleties in that ayah is that it is talking about senile parents. 
right? Talking about senile parents, talking about older parents. And the note about that is, you know, again, younger folks, you have no idea what that's like. Maybe you've seen your grandparents in that age. That's actually how I know. Alhamdulillah, my parents aren't really senile yet, but they're starting to get old. They're physically becoming frail. And, and they're, they're, they, they demand and they need a lot more than they, than they did 10 years ago. I mean, this is something I vividly remember. So I'm 32 years old, so I, I've, you know, I have a large memory of spending life and spending time with my parents. They need a lot more. They require a lot more. In terms of patience, in terms of emotions, like they, they have more emotional needs, they have more physical needs than they did 10 years ago. I'm noticing it day by day. But what I really got to see was my grandmother, past, you know, towards the end of her life. Two of both, my, both of my grandmothers, I never knew my grandfathers. They, one passed away before I was born, the other passed away when I was still very young. But my grandmothers were people I got to spend a lot of time with. Because I studied in Pakistan, that's where I did the bulk of my studying, and that's where the mo- most of my teachers are at, and they were there as well, so I would go and spend time with them and visit them quite often. One of my grandmothers, towards the end of her life, she became physically very ill, mentally completely sound, emotionally still very strong, but her body just completely fell apart. Major medical issues, major ailments and sicknesses. And I saw the toll that that took on her children to take care of her, to, to care for her, to be there for her. All right, constant care required. My other grandmother, my mom's mom, physically, alhamdulillah, she died very healthy. She was walking around and she was physically very active. Even though she was very old, she was into her like, you know, 90s. But at the same time, she, she got Alzheimer's. Her mind gave up on her. Her mind fell apart. And, toward, and the Alzheimer's kept getting more and more and more aggressive to the point where towards the end of her life, she had developed like full-on dementia. And she would not remember anything. And she would wake up like screaming and paranoid. Didn't know where she was. She wouldn't recognize anyone. She was so difficult to deal with. She was so uncooperative. Where doctors were at the point where t- practically, I mean, they were like saying, that's it, just hook her up to some, you know, some, some medication, like morphine or whatever, pain and sleep medication. Just let her sleep 16, 18 hours a day. Just keep her drugged up all the time because it, it was just so difficult. And of course, you know, because her children loved her, they didn't want to do something like that to her. Um, but it was just very, very difficult to deal with. So when the ayah talks about senile parents, you have to understand that. Our parents, especially those of you who are a lot younger than me, half my age, your parents are so very lucid and, lucid and they're intelligent and they're, you know, active and they're, in, they're literally, you know, at their in- intellectual peak. They're at their intellectual peak. You know, the intellectual peak of man is at, at the age of 40. That's why Nubuwa and Prophet would be granted to majority of people at the age of 40. So they're still very much in the prime of their life. They are not that difficult to deal with. They are not that difficult to deal with. When you have a senile parent... When you have a physically incapacitated parent, that's what requires a lot of patience. That's what really, where you're, you're tested in your character, whether you will ignore them or not. And that's what it's talking about. So I wanted to kind of, you know, complete that picture for you guys. And there's a couple of like stories. There are proverbs, there are stories, there are morals, there's lessons that are told. 
that are very insightful. And I want you to hear this out. There's a saying, there's a saying, um, some people have mentioned this as a hadith, but there's little to no evidence to establish this as a hadith. Nevertheless, this is quoted as a, from the hikam, as, a, as, a, as words of wisdom. That they say, Burru aba'akum, ya burrukum abna'ukum. Alright? Do good by your parents, and your kids will do good by you. What goes around, comes around. And that's something very important to remember. Alright? Something very important to remember. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And they used to tell us stories. Our teachers even told us this. You know, an elderly man, he was physically, mentally, completely just falling apart, losing it. Senile, old, physically frail. And he was so difficult to deal with. He was so impatient, so angry. Like people when they start to become senile, they're very angry and impatient. The Quran says, Right? They get returned back to the worst of ages. They become like pouty little children. And so this elderly man is so difficult to deal with that the son picks him up and says, I'm done with you. I'm just done. I'm not dealing with this anymore. I can't. So he picks him up, because he can't even walk, he picks him up and he starts walking with him. Just picks him up and walks out of his house. He says, I'm going to go somewhere far away to the middle of the forest. I'm just going to leave you there. And I don't know what happens to you, I don't care what happens to you. And he's walking and walking and walking, and eventually they reach a point, and the father says, this is good, you can leave me here. He says, why, you're okay with being left here? He goes, no, I'm telling you you can leave me here because this is where I left my father. When my father got old and he got senile and he got difficult to deal with, I picked him up, I walked out of my house, I said, I'm done with you, I can't deal with you anymore, and I came to this spot and I left him here. So you can leave me here, because it's just, it's coming right back to me. I'm getting what I deserve. Another little story, you know, that our imams, our shuyukh, our teachers used to tell us, was this an elderly man. Again, old and frail and see now, eyes are weak, he can't really see the clock. You know, he can't use the cell phone to check, the, to carry a cell phone, know what time it is. So he's sitting there, he's squinting at the clock and he goes, son, what time is it? And his son is a grown, you know, grown man. He's in a grown, independent, intelligent adult at this point. Has his own life, his own wealth, his own money, his own everything. So he says, Dad, it's uh, 9 o'clock. So he says, okay. Two minutes later, he's like, Son, what time is it? And he's like, Dad, it's uh, 9 o'clock, maybe 9.02 now. A couple of minutes later, he's like, son, what time is it? And the son goes, are you stupid? Like, are you all right? Is something busted? You asked me the same question within five minutes. What time do you think it is? It's 9.05. Right? We didn't transport through time. Right? I don't see Michael J. Fox in the DeLorean here anywhere. It's 9.05, what's wrong with you? And he's like, son, I know it's 9.05. I asked you this question to see how many times I could ask you before you became irritated with me. Because when you were 
three years old? Daddy, what time is it? It's nine o'clock. It's nine o'clock, baby. It's nine o'clock. 30 seconds later. Daddy, what time is it? Hey, buddy, it's 9.01. Yeah, yeah. Another 60 seconds later. Daddy, what time is it? It's 9.02. Woohoo. 60 seconds. Daddy, what time is it now? It's 9.03. We can do this all night. And he said, you literally asked me that question 60 times within one hour. And every single time I answered with a smile on my face, with a different little gesture and expression to make you happy. And I was okay with it. I asked you three times and that's it. That's all you could afford me after everything I afforded you. So it's, it's perspective is all it is, folks. It's perspective. So that's one thing I definitely wanted to talk about. I wanted to address, kind of add on to what Brother Murphy had talked to you guys about. The other topic, the other, there's a bunch of things in my head, but the other thing that I wanted to get to, I wanted to make sure I was able to talk about is kind of talk about the other side of things. And I did a little bit of that earlier today where I wanted to speak to the parents in regards to their children. You know, in the Quran, every single time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about giving children, giving children, every single time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about giving children, granting children, offspring, sons and daughters and children. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not use the word i'ta, which means to give. Allah does not use the word ita, which means to grant, a little more respectful, a little more nicer, grant. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the word hiba. Hiba. The word hiba in the Arabic language means gift. What does it mean everyone? Gift. Yahabu liman yasha'u inathan. وَيَهَبُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ الذُّكُورِ فَهَبْ لِي مِنْ لَدُنْكَ ذُرِّيَّةً طَيِّبًا فَهَبْ لِي مِنْ لَدُنْكَ وَلِيًّا وَهَبْ لَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَّاتِنَا قُرَّةَ أَعْيُنَ Allah uses the word gift because children are a gift. And something specifically, some, a little bit of a nuance about the Quranic language and Quranic vocabulary, the word hiba means a specific type of gift. It means a gift that nothing is expected in return for that gift. It is an unconditional gift. It is a generous gift. When you give something, you don't want nothing, you don't expect anything in return. Just here. Just out of the goodness, out of the generosity, out of the kindness of someone's heart. They give you a big old gift. That's what children are. Children are a gift. They are a treasure. They are precious. You know, we, we say these things when it's time to fundraise. You know, they're our future. Children are our future. They are literally our future. And what we have to understand a lot of times is not just to carry on our name. Not even something religious like to carry on our deen. But they are even our future in terms of they, a lot of our akhirah. And how we will do, how we will fare in the akhirah is based on our children. They're either an investment or they're an indictment. They're either an investment or they're an indictment. For you in the akhirah, in the hereafter. That's why the Prophet, Brother Abdurrahman was talking about making dua for your parents after they've passed away. The Prophet of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, says, when a human being leaves this world, his actions cease, they're done, they're finished, except for three things. What was the third of those three things? Waladun salihun. A pious, righteous child. Yad'ulahu, who continues. That's why the Prophet ﷺ uses the present slash future tense form of the verb. He continues to make dua for his parent. For his mom or his dad. 
That's an investment into your akhirah. So children are a gift, they're a treasure from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we need to learn to treat them as such. And so a few things, a few basic pointers I wanted to give. This is the topic in and of itself and I realize that. But a few basic things. We can all walk away with a few things today. Number one, spend quality time with your kids. Listen, let me, let me, let me be very honest about something. Even mothers spend quality time with your kids. But I'm really not in a position to talk to the mothers. Mothers are superheroes. Alright, and I'll, talk, I'll, t- I'll talk, tell you something very specific about our dynamic. Again, the immigrant Muslim community dynamic. Because again, immigrants typically have their backs up against the wall and they face so many challenges. The father, the dad, the breadwinner, the head of the household has to go so pedal to the metal in making sure that they are able to succeed and they have a nice home to live in and that he has a good, you know, secure income and that his children have a good, brighter future and a great education and all those wonderful things that dads tend to become very absent. Dads tend to become extremely absent. And in those cases, moms are stepping up. They're just amazing in the way that they're stepping up. Like big time. Moms are clutch in the way that they're stepping up. But at the same time, still a little bit of a humble suggestion. Alright? And if I'm wrong, may Allah forgive me. But a humble suggestion to the mothers as well is that you know, you care so much for the kids and you spend so much time with the kids and you do so much for the children. Make sure that there is some time that's also invested into just communication and conversation. Make sure that all your conversations with your kids are not simply telling them what to do and telling them what they did not do. That's a part of being a mom. You're, 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 the, you're the floor general. You're running the house. You're the manager on the floor right there. So you have to manage that home. And I completely understand and respect that. But at the same time, make sure that all the conversations, all the communication is not simply do this, don't do that. Did you do this? Did you do that? Make sure there is just some heart-to-heart communication. There are deeper conversations. Something interesting I share with people, it's personal. But it's one of those moments where, you know, where family, all families are here. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Everybody's here feeling comfortable. So I don't mind sharing something personal with you guys. I learned Iman. I learned how to believe from my mom. I learned how to believe from my mom. I learned akhlaq from my dad. How to conduct myself, how to be a man, how to you know, present myself, how to walk and how to talk like a proper respectful man. But I learned how to believe Iman from my mom. Because those were our conversations from the very get-go, from very early on. My relationship, my bond, my connection with the Qur'an was through my mom. Because every day after Salat al-Fajr, she would make sure I sat in her lap and read Qur'an with her. And so it's very, very important that you make sure that that quality time is being invested. And then to the fathers, quality time, and I say this as a father, so I'm talking to myself, no offense meant to anyone. I'm lecturing myself, I'm reprimanding myself. When I go home, and I sleep in the home for 8 hours, I, ha- I eat for 30 minutes, and then I knock out, and I go to sleep, and I sleep for 8 hours, that does not qualify as time spent at home with the family. I was sleeping on my face, I was drooling on my pillow. That's not time spent with my family, with my children. Spend quality time with your children. During the day, when they're awake, when they're energetic, when they're active, and talk to them, do activities with them, go out with them, run around with them, play sports with them. Do whatever it takes, but connect with them. And that's, that's what becomes meaningful. That's what's valuable. That's where those connections are made. That's where those channels of communication are established. That's when your kids are comfortable talking to you. 
coming to you for anything and everything. So that time is very, very important. Quality time. And there are two things that often get in the way of, those quality, of that quality time. Number one is worldly pursuits. Right, like I said, backs up against a wall, we got to succeed. You know, when I came here, I came here with $10 in my pocket, and I didn't speak a lick of English, and I was able to make all of this happen. More power to you. I respect you for doing that. But also at the same time understand that what you were, you know, you know kids, yes, sometimes in their impatience, in their ingratitude, out of their immaturity, they will complain when they can't have the new phone, when they can't have the new computer, when they can't have the nice new shoes. But at the end of the day, when they're grown up and when they look back at their life and they try to reflect on their relationship with you as a father... The shoes that you bought them and the, the house that they lived in and the furniture that they had will not mean anything to them. If they, were, if they didn't have a good meaningful relationship with you. If you have to work a little less overtime and you won't be able to buy the nice bigger house, it's okay. If when they turn 16 you're going to have to buy them a beater Civic instead of, instead of a nice BMW, it's okay, do it. But save that time and make sure you spend that time with your children. Go home. Get home when they're still awake, they're still alert, they're still in their day. Eat with them together. You know, the Center for Substance Abuse and Addiction, based out of Columbia University, they published research. It was uh, Time Magazine ran with the story in June 2006, where they talked about families that eat one meal together make happier, healthier homes and families. Just because they're spending meaningful, awake, alert time together, and they're kind of doing an activity together that naturally spawns, it breaks the ice and it spawns conversation. And we have the most beautiful function. What is our function? That's it. Pray with your family. You know the Messenger of Allah because he was the leader. He was the Imam. The Prophet of Allah used to pray five times a day in the masjid. But where did the Prophet used to pray his sunnah prayers? Back in the home. Back at home. And you know what the difference between the home and the masjid was? This is the home, that's the masjid. Like there was a curtain that separated his home from his masjid, that was it. But he would have the, the, the awareness, the consciousness, the diligence, that where he just got done praying in the masjid here, he would take the four steps, cross through the curtain, and go and pray in the home with the family members. With the family. So spend time together, quality time. Don't let your worldly pursuits get in the way because when they're grown and they're raised, I know. And I know, again, I, I, I don't want to get too specific. So it sounds very theoretical, but I know people. Remember, I, I kind of shared earlier this morning how I'm part of a generation, you know, 32 years old in Dallas, Texas. It's a very young community. Like our communities, everything that you hear about our community has happened in the last 10, 11 years. When I graduated and came back, that's when we got to work. It's a, it's a very young community. And so when I was growing up there, at that time, there was literally a dozen families. Very small community. Very tight community. And so the guys that I grew up with, you know, and they were the, the first people to land on the ground there, and the first people to try to succeed and build something there for themselves and their careers and their future and their success. Those guys that I grew up with today have absolutely nothing to do with their families. They have nothing to do with their parents. They went out of their way to move away and to never come back. 
Unaid their parents cry. Please, come home for a day. And the reason is, is because, and their parents, I mean, even that is ungrateful. Because these guys that I'm talking about are doctors and surgeons and engineers and, you know, corporate hotshots working on the 18th floor, the 25th floor. But what they say is, yeah, you know, you gave us a lot of this, a lot of education and money and cars and nice stuff, but I don't even know who you are. I don't have any relationship with you. I, I don't know, you know, what you, I know nothing about you and you know nothing about me. So what's the point of going through this, this, this charade? What's the point? At the same time, the parents of those same... And remember, these adults, being in the position of an imam or a community leader or a teacher, at a very basic level, you know, obviously I'm used to people a lot older than me coming and talking and seeking advice, but it's really awkward with these parents, these uncles and aunties. Because these are the uncles and aunties that saw me in my diapers. Like, they, they, they are my uncles and aunts. And when they come and sit in front of me with tears in their eyes, and they're crying and they say, Nasir Britta, we achieved so much. I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it. All of my kids are doctors. I have so much accomplished in a worldly sense. But at what price, at what cost? My children want nothing to do with me today. I live by myself. Meaning I don't even have any family. I don't have anyone to talk to. I have no one to share the happiness with. I have no one to share holidays with. I find out about my grandchildren being born on Facebook. Very serious. So we have to take into consideration at what cost are we willing to achieve success. And then I don't think it's a really huge problem. In some communities it's a bigger problem. But even religious pursuits. It can become an issue and a problem. The dirty little secret. The dirty little secret of this line of work, religious line of work if you want to call it that. Is that the imams of, the, the children of imams and shiuch and scholars. Are often the most distant and have the least amount of interest in deen. And you know where that stems from, where that comes from? Because again, I was so pedal to the metal in learning and teaching and preaching and changing the world and solving people's problems and giving khutbahs and doing all this amazing work that what was I sacrificing? My children. They didn't see me. They didn't spend time with me. They didn't know me. And the children grow up realizing that Islam is the thing that took my father away from me. That took my mother away from me. And that's the last thing they want anything to do with when they do grow up. So as parents understand, we have a lot of discourse in our communities about the rights of the parents. And rightfully so. Youngins, you need to respect your parents. That's not a choice, it's not an option. It's ordained by God. That's it. End of story. But at the same time, I think we need to balance it out with, it, with talk in our communities about the responsibility that parents shoulder. It's a huge responsibility. So please understand that. The other thing, kind of, I have just a few basic points. It's tied into the same topic. Talking about this, spending quality time together, one of the big, you know, conceptual problems that we have, like concepts. One of the things we've misunderstood in our deen, in our religion, is we need to redefine the boundaries of ibadah. 
worship. Redefine the boundaries. Right now, if I don't go to the masjid in the evening to pray salah bil jama'ah, you know, we should pray as much as possible, salah in congregation. But if I didn't today, because why? I was going to have a special dinner with my children, with my wife. And I was going to then sit and have a conversation with my kids and play some board games with my kids. There's a guilt that's involved with that. There's a guilt that's involved with that. Time spent with my wife. When I go out to an intimate dinner with my wife, that's bad. Like now I got to go and make that, up, make that time up with Allah. Because that was time spent away from Allah. When I roll around and wrestle around in my living room with my kids, then I have to get serious and go pray. I got to make up for all this time that I wasted. We have to redefine the boundaries of ibadah. Spending time with your spouse, intimacy with your spouse is ibadah worship. This is a family gathering, so I'm going to kind of speak in code a little bit. But I want the older folks, like the parents and the married people, I want you to really, really pay attention to what I'm saying. Alright, and read through the code. The Prophet of Allah tells his companions that physical intimacy with one's spouse is an act of reward and worship, literally. You get reward, ajr, hasanat, for physical intimacy with your spouse. Sahaba anhu are baffled. Because if you look at the basic surface level fiqh of it, what do you have to go and do after physical intimacy with the spouse? Tahara. You have to go and achieve tahara, purification. How could that be something that you get reward and ajr for? The Prophet of Allah says, well obviously this is a human need. If you were to go and fulfill that human need elsewhere, would you be sinful or not? Absolutely. So if you're doing it in the right way, in the proper way, and you're fulfilling the right of your spouse, why wouldn't it be an act of worship and reward? Spending time, the sadaqah, the Prophet of Allah says that to sit and to put a morsel, like a, like a bite of food lovingly into the, into the mouth, like feed with your own hand your wife, like you know, romantic gestures and silliness and spending time together, to do that with your wife, that's, an, that's a sadaqah. It's charity, it's reward, it's protection from the hellfire. Spending time with your kids is an act of ibadah and worship. Redefine these boundaries. Family is a beautiful institution. Abdurrahman posted a little note the other day uh, online about a quote from a scholar where he was saying, and I mean, this is something, you know, I completely 100% agree. This is something I've been saying for a very long time, but it was so succinctly, so beautifully, so comprehensively put into a few words where he said, putting religion before family is impossible. Putting religion before family is impossible because family is religion. Family is a part of your religion. Family is a part of your deen. Family is a part of your devotion and dedication to Allah. So when you say putting religion before your family, you're contradicting yourself. It's like I'm going to put my religion before salah. That's stupid. That makes no sense. So you can't put religion before your family either. That means you haven't understood religion. The Prophet of Allah you know, he would very rarely get upset with someone. The Prophet was the, the institution, the beacon, the epitome, the standard of patience, self-control. Right? A man urinates in the masjid. Alright, and for the young folks, so that you understand this, what that means, a man walks in and pees in the masjid. What does the Prophet do? What's his reaction? You know what his reaction was? 
No reaction. He's just chilling. Some people start to get kind of relaxed. Take it easy. Everybody chill. No problem. When the man's done, he actually says, let him finish. When he's done, the Prophet of Allah requests, can I speak to you for a few minutes? And actually tell Sahaba now, the ones that were getting all like fidgety, said, now go clean up. Go clean up. That self-control. So a man urinates in the masjid, calm, cool, relaxed. A young man walks up to the Prophet of Allah and very vulgarly says, I'd like to go and commit a sin with that girl. I'm not going to say it because it's inappropriate and it's a family gathering. But for those who understand, when a young man would not walk up and say formally, I would like to go and commit a sin with that girl. You can imagine the word that he used. He used a slang word to say, I'd like to go and commit a sin with that girl. You can imagine how crude and how disrespectful it must have been. How vile and vulgar it must have been. Prophet calm, cool, collected, and talks to him and reasons with him. That's it. But the Prophet of Allah when three young men walk up to him and say, from here on out, I'm, I'm never going to sleep at night ever again. One says, I'm never going to get married, because it gets in the way of worship. One says that I'm going to fast every single day for the rest of my life. The Prophet of Allah gets angry with them. The narration says his red face became red. There was a vein that would pop out in his forehead when he got very, very angry. And the Sahaba remembered that because how rare of occurrence it was. And actually something beautiful that the scholars, they actually point out that Allah, the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet such a distinct physical like feature about his anger so that as soon as his anger would start to surface and his red face would become red and the vein in his forehead would pop out so that people would realize he was getting angry because the anger of the Messenger of Allah was a very dangerous thing. It was a very dangerous thing. So he becomes angry. The man who never gets angry, gets angry with youth. It sounds like the, it sounds like, you know, the opposite version of the story. But the scholars explained the reason why God angry was because what they were saying could have affected for future generations the entire structure and the foundation of our religion. Because they were taking family out of the equation. I don't want to get married. Marriage gets in the way of worship. Marriage is worship. The Prophet of Allah says, when those of you go and you get married, you've just completed half your iman. So we need to take a different view of things. I spoke this morning about leading by example. Parents, lead by example. It's very important. There's no substitute, there's no replacement for that. And there's something that I haven't spoken about at all. Literally, I have not spoken about at all publicly. And to some of you, it might not even make a lot of sense, because like I said, Alhamdulillah, this is my first time getting to know many of you, and your first time getting to know me as well. But for those who have known me for quite some time, Alhamdulillah, over the last year, I was able to better my health quite a bit. I was able to better my health quite a bit. And to not say too much, I normally would never recommend this, but go on YouTube and search my name and watch an older video. <laughs> Murphy calls me the Jared of the Muslim world. So, alhamdulillah, I was able to better my health to quite an extent, by the grace and mercy of Allah, by the tawfiq of Allah. One of the primary motivating factors, and this is something very personal I'm sharing with you. One of the primary motivating factors about bettering my health was the fact that now my kids were actually starting to grow up. My Maryam, she just started going to school this past September. So she went to pre-K for the first time. She's four years old. You know, my Aisha is now like fully talking and stuff now. So they were growing up now. 
And they were going to have to start to, you know, figure out life and start to make better decisions. And I had to start teaching them about life now. It was past the Google Gaga stage. Now I was going to start teaching them about life. They were going to start learning about life from me. Now, I took a long, hard look in the mirror, literally. And I asked myself the question that how am I supposed to tell my kids to be healthy when I myself am in this condition? It's hypocrisy, right? It's hypocrisy. How can I tell my children to make better choices in the food that they eat, to get physical activity, to be healthy and active when I myself am in this shape? I, I couldn't. And that was a major motivating factor. So that's something that we need to learn to do is lead by example because there's no substitution for that. The last and the final point, of course I did talk this morning about understand where your kids are coming from. Understand where they're coming from. It's very difficult out there. It's a very difficult environment. They're not growing up where, you know, 90% of their school is Muslim. They're not growing up in a place where there's a masjid on every block. They're not going up in a place where the, the sound of Allah, Akbar Allah, Akbar is being called on speakers like all across the city all the time, five times a day, everywhere. They're growing up in a very difficult time. Temptations, they are drowning in them. And now, as if they needed any more challenges, we're currently in the midst of this Islamophobia blitz. Where they are the most reviled people in this country. It's difficult. And they're hanging in there, mashallah. Especially if your kids are here tonight, mashallah, they're hanging in there. This is Thanksgiving weekend, it's Saturday night. I mean, I need you to understand in the youth culture... Saturday night, long weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, you're at a masjid listening to some old dude talk. That equals loser. That makes you a loser in youth culture. The fact that they're here though, mashallah, shows that they're really winners. Right? So understand, give them the benefit of the doubt, understand where they're coming from. Mashallah, they're hanging in there. Stay with them, reinforce them in a very, very positive manner and support them, inshallah. And then the most important thing, make dua for them. That's, Brother Murphy hit the nail on the head when he said, make dua for your parents. Similarly, parents make dua for your children. We overlook this simple, basic thing so much, so often. Make dua for your kids, for your children. رَبَّنَا هَبْلَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَّاتِنَا قُرَّةَ أَعْيُنْ Make my spouse and my children the coolness of the eyes. The coolness of the eyes. You know, we say that so often, coolness of the eyes. What does that even mean? We kind of have an idea of what it means, cause, or we think we know what it means, because it's in the Qur'an, it's in supplication, so we assume. It's a figure of speech, it's an expression. To understand any expression, you have to put yourself into the mindset of the person who said the expression. Like somebody who's not from America, somebody who's not from America wouldn't understand what off the hook means. Like off the hook, like they wouldn't know what that means. Right? So... You have to come into the mindset and understand what, what, what they're saying and where they're coming from when they say it. The Arabs would say coolness of the eyes because imagine being in the desert. There's no electricity, no shelter, no nothing like this, no air conditioning. 120 degrees outside. You're walking around under the burning, scorching sun and the heat of the desert and the hot wind is blowing and it's blowing burning hot sand into your eyes. 
I want you to imagine how much your eyes would burn at that time. There's no visine, no sunglasses, no nothing like that. So your eyes feel like they're on fire. Like you just want to rip them out. You just want to itch it. You like your eyes. You want to scratch your eyes. Think about that. And then all of a sudden as you're walking along, you come across some nice, cool, clean water. And you take that water and you splash it into your face and into your eyes. How refreshing would that feel? Amazing, right? That's what we are asking Allah to make our kids. That when we look at them, it takes our pain away. It takes our worries away. Our day instantly becomes a hundred times better. Make our children the coolness of the eyes. وَجَعَلْنَا And then make us لِلْمُتَّقِينَ imaman. Make us the leaders of the most pious and righteous. Make us, a, make us a role model family. Make us the standard for what is a true family. And so com, re, always remember to continue to make dua for your children as well. Um, Jazakumullah khairan for your parents. I know I went very, very long. Uh, uh, parents, look at that, it's on the brain. Jazakumullah khairan for your patience. I know I went very, very long. Um, there were actually a couple of other side topics I kind of wanted to jump into, but the time doesn't allow for it. We also have to answer a few questions and pray Salat al-Isha. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. It's kind of good that we have something left to talk about, so that inshallah when I visit back sooner than later, then we do have some other discussions to get into. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.